All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this uh, time to be together, to worship you, to hear from your word, to be trained, to be equipped, to be empowered, and to fellowship with you and with each other. We pray that you would uh, bless the sermon. We pray that you would give us clarity. I pray that you would give me clarity, and we pray that you would uh, just help us to understand your word and to understand um, how you would have us to think. We thank you for your grace and amen. So today we are uh, continuing our series called How to Be Legalistic. The point of this series isn't to become legalistic, but rather to know what causes legalism and how do you avoid it. The term legalism has become a bit of a catch-all term for almost any type of having an unhealthy relationship with rules. Uh, so in this series, we're actually addressing four different types of problems that could each be considered legalism. Believing that the law will justify you, believing that separation will sanctify you, holding to standards that God doesn't command, and caring about God's commands more than God does. And unfortunately, legalism has the tendency to sneak into our thoughts and attitudes, often in small, subtle ways, and often without us noticing. So the goal of this series is to help you identify legalism in your own thoughts and attitudes, and to help you overcome it. So today we're, we're dealing with the third type of legalism, holding to standards that God doesn't command, and when I say holding to standards that God doesn't command, I'm talking about when a person thinks that something is moral, morally forbidden, even though God didn't forbid it, or that something is morally required, even though God didn't command it. Both of those are holding to moral standards that God doesn't command. So why is that a bad thing, though? Hopefully you think that's a bad thing, but if you don't, I want to convince you that it is. How could that be harmful? What's the harm in having a little extra rules here and there? Don't rules make things safer? How bad could it be? How harmful could it be? Well, it can be harmful. There's like four ways we're going to talk about how having extra biblical standards can be harmful. And by extra biblical, I mean outside of the Bible, something God doesn't command in his word. So the first way that extra-biblical stand, extra standards can be harmful is that they can be a hindrance to your Christian testimony. Non-believers are usually tempted to think that turning to Christ would mean they can't have any fun anymore. And when Christians add extra rules to the ones God already gives, we're needlessly making that temptation even stronger. And that's a serious issue. That is not something to take lightly. Let's look at Matthew 18, verse 7. Woe to the world for its temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Jesus sounds pretty serious about this. So you don't want to be a person who's needlessly increasing temptation for another person. And when we have extra-biblical standards, that can happen. Even though temptations come from the world, sometimes temptations needlessly come from the carelessness of Christians. Let's look at Romans 2, verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Temptations do come from the world, but sadly, sometimes temptations come from the carelessness of God's people. Sometimes we're a stumbling block to others, and that's very serious. 
we definitely shouldn't hold back about what God's commands actually are just to make coming to Christ more enticing to non-Christians, but we also need to be very careful to not make it harder than it needs to be by teaching commandments that the Bible doesn't actually teach. That's one of the major complaints Jesus had against the Pharisees. Let's look at Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We need to be very careful to not add anything to God's standards, and doing so can be greatly unloving to others. So that's one way that extra-biblical standards can be harmful. Another way extra-biblical standards can be harmful is that they can hinder unity. Let's look at Romans 14, verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So Paul is describing here in this passage a situation where one believer believes eating food previously sacrificed to an idol is a sin, and another another believer believes that it isn't a sin. But this situation can tempt the one who believes that it isn't a sin to look down on the one who believes it is a sin. Or it can tempt the one who believes that, it's, um, that it is a sin to become judgmental or to feel morally superior on, against the one who believes it isn't. So basically, this, it creates opportunity for disunity. And the reason issues like this can exist is because there is genuine disagreement about what God actually commands. But the better each of us knows what God commands, the less disagreement we will have. And we should feel some amount of moral responsibility uh, for love's sake to try our best to get to know what God actually commands. To not miss anything that he does command, but also not to have anything that we hold as a moral standard that is something he doesn't command. Because that can be a hindrance to others. It can hinder Christian unity. Every time we start holding a moral standard that isn't from God, we are creating opportunities for disunity with other believers. And that's a bad thing. Another reason extra-biblical standards can be harmful is they can lead you or others away from some of God's blessings. Let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving. 
So this is probably the least significant of these ways extra-biblical standards can be harmful. Uh, but holding to extra-biblical standards can lead you to missing out on enjoying some of the blessings God created for you to enjoy. And it can also lead others to missing out on them. Because contrary to modern belief, no one has a moral opinion in a vacuum. I see people arguing on the internet a lot, why do you care what I believe is morally right or wrong? It doesn't affect you. But honestly, that's a nonsensical idea. Everyone who has a moral opinion about anything, that moral opinion has implications for other people. You can't have a moral opinion in a vacuum. You can't have a thought on what's right or what's wrong that doesn't affect other people or that doesn't have implications for other people. And it's pretty hard to have one that doesn't influence others to some degree, unless you don't talk to other people, which, you know, I don't recommend living a life where you don't talk to other people. Not only does everyone's moral opinions have implications for others, but they tend to, to some degree, to influence others. And the last reason, and maybe the, probably the biggest reason why holding to extra-biblical standards can be harmful is because it can lead you away from the heart of God. Let's look at Mark 7, verses 5 through 7. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as, doctrine, the, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." When we let our hearts become preoccupied with standards that God doesn't care about, that leads our heart away from his. You know, one of the ways that our heart becomes close to God's heart is when we care about the things he cares about. But when we start to become more preoccupied with standards that aren't from him, that's inevitably, to some degree, leading our heart away from him. Because we're starting to prioritize things he doesn't care about. And this, this was a major problem with the Pharisees. Let's look at Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you don't accidentally swallow a fly, but you swallow a camel. Jesus was saying that they were prioritizing minor issues uh, over major things so much that, they're that they, you know, they strain out a fly, but they swallow a camel. They're making a priority out of extra-biblical standards was seriously leading them away from the heart of God. They were failing to prioritize the priorities that God had. So 
So extra biblical standards are harmful and dangerous. They can hinder testimony. They can hinder unity. They can lead you or others to miss out on God's blessings. And worst of all, they can lead you away from the heart of God. So how do we avoid having extra biblical standards? Because again, no, no one does these things on purpose. No one thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to add to God's law. That'll make me, that'll be good. <laughs> Maybe a few people think that, but I think most people don't think that. You know, no one knows that they're wrong. We're all wrong about a number of things, but we don't know which ones we're wrong about or else we want, we'd change our minds and we want to be wrong. So people with extra-biblical standards typically don't know that they have extra-biblical standards. For all I know, I might have extra-biblical standards. So I figured the best way to go about this, I'm going to talk about nine different underlying ways of thinking that can potentially lead to extra-biblical standards. Now, we don't have time to cover all nine of them today, so we're going to cover four today and five next week. But there's, there's nine types of thinking that I think can lead to extra-biblical standards. And if you avoid these nine types of thinking, or these, then you'll probably do a pretty good job of avoiding extra-biblical standards. The first one is assigning moral authority to sources other than the scriptures. You shouldn't assign moral authority to sources other than the scriptures. And by assigning moral authority to sources other than the scriptures, I mean treating things other than the Bible like they have the right or the authority to determine right or wrong. Only the scriptures can determine right or wrong. Only God has the authority to determine right and wrong. So let's talk about why it's incorrect to give to assign moral authority to sources other than the scriptures. Well, first off, uh, the scriptures, when it comes to teaching us what's right and wrong, are complete. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The ESV uses the term complete, uh, and the NASB uses the term fully capable. But if the Bible were missing truth about what's right or wrong in some area, then it wouldn't be able to make a person completely equipped for every good work. If God neglected, for whatever reason, to tell you completely in his word what's right and what's wrong, then it can't make you equipped for every good work. The scriptures have everything we need to know right and wrong. Let's also look at Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. So what does perfect mean? Perfect means nothing can be done to improve a thing. If something has room for improvement, it's not perfect. And that's another way that we know that God's word isn't missing anything about what's right and wrong, or else it could be improved upon. 
there is no need to assign moral authority to anything other than the Scripture because the Scripture is complete. Secondly, God said not to add to his word. And he says this in various places throughout the Scripture. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord that I command you. Let's also look at Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So God says very plainly not to add to his word. And when we start to teach moral standards that don't come from God as if they came from God, we are in essence or in effect adding to God's word. And sometimes, I said earlier, most people don't purposefully follow extra biblical rules, but sometimes we get tempted to do that, sadly. Sometimes we as humans, mostly because of pride, get tempted to think that extra biblical rules will help us, but they won't. Let's look at Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These, have the indeed, these indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I'm not saying you shouldn't have goals. Uh, you might have you know, things you try to hold yourself to in terms of a budget, but you don't consider that morally binding. You know, sometimes I break the budget, but I know that that's not a sin. But sometimes we get tempted to, you know, think that extra biblical rules will help us, but they won't. They're of no value in stopping the flesh. The last reason I would say it's, it's an issue to ascribe moral authority to any source other than the scripture is because any moral truth that isn't from God is competing with God. Let's look at Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. God claims to have the standard of what righteousness is. So any, any truth about what's right and wrong that doesn't come from God is competing with God. It's saying God didn't get all of it. So we need to not assign moral authority to sources other than the scriptures. But I, so... Part of the goal of this series is to see how legalism sneaks into our thinking. No one's purposefully legalistic. So how does this idea of assigning more authority to sources other than the scriptures, how does that sneak into our thinking? 
Well, sometimes it does in subtle ways. Um, for example, if we tell others that what they're doing is wrong, but we can't give a logical biblical reason. And you know, sometimes it, this is easy to fall into. But if, if you feel that someone else, something someone else is doing is wrong, ask yourself, what verse, what passage says that that's wrong? And does my interpretation of that passage make logical sense in the context of the Bible as a whole? And if you can't give yourself an answer, you should probably stop thinking that what they're doing is wrong. Another way we let this sneak into our thinking is if we think that something is right or wrong just because others think so. And there's, there's pressure to think that way because that's what the culture teaches nowadays. The culture teaches that the determining factor of what's right or wrong is what the majority consensus is. But that's nonsense. But sometimes that can subtly influence us in our thinking. Another way we might let this slip into our thoughts and attitudes is if we think that something is wrong just because it's against tradition or it's because against what we've always been told. Traditions can sometimes be good, like the Super Bowl party, but we can't afford to put the weight of moral obligation on them or else they're competing with God's standards. So that's the first type of thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards, assigning moral authority to sources other than the scriptures. The second one, I'm going to try to explain this well. I maybe could have worded this different, but yeah, it's too late now. Uh, So having a whitelist morality assumption. So what do I mean by whitelist? So whitelist is a computer networking term. Um, Whitelist and blacklist are both computer networking terms. They're not racist. They're just names. And they're methods for how to block websites. So if you're in charge of a computer network for a company, you might not want all the employees to be able to visit any website they want during working hours. And there's two ways to stop them. You can make a whitelist or a blacklist. Uh, and you, there's really, you should really only pick one or the other. There's no point in mixing them. In practice, you can't really mix them effectively. So what's a whitelist and what's a blacklist? A whitelist is a list of websites that people are allowed to visit. And if it's not on that list, it's forbidden. A blacklist is... The inverse of that, a, web, a list of websites people aren't allowed to visit. And if it's not on that list, then it's allowed. So how does this relate to morality? Well, these are basically also two ways of viewing morality. A whitelist view of morality would be the idea that unless God tells us we can do it, we're not allowed to do it. A blacklist view of morality would be the inverse. Unless God forbids it, you're allowed to do it. Now, I want to point out that both of these are assumptions. The Bible isn't explicit on which one of these views is correct, per se. The Bible doesn't really talk about this at all, explicitly. But the Bible postulates the assumption of blacklist morality. 
blackless morality is assumed in the Bible. The idea that you're allowed to do something unless God tells you you can't is assumed throughout the entire Bible. That's why God forbids things. Because if that wasn't the case, then from Genesis you know, to the end, God would just start telling you what you can do rather than telling you what you can't do. And someone might say, well, why then does the scripture start with telling, or why does in the very first few chapters of the scripture God tell Adam and Eve that they can eat from any uh, tree of the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, I would say the reason for that is because property laws are inherent in human existence. You know, everything has an owner. And God owns everything. And he was telling them that even though he owns it, He's giving it to them as a gift. They're allowed to use it. But he didn't tell Adam that he was allowed to walk or to use the restroom. But we know clearly that Adam was allowed to. Um, So I'm going to talk about a few reasons people assume whitelist morality or a whitelist view of morality. I think there's maybe... Uh, two different passages that people might interpret to, to give an assumption of whiteless morality. The first one is John 8, verse 28, uh, specifically in the NASB 1995 translation. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own initiative. But I speak these things the Father taught me. Now, personally, I don't think he, well, actually, first off, not all translations translate this as my own initiative. The ESV translates it authority. But even when it comes to the idea that it would be initiative, I don't think Jesus meant literally nothing. I don't think he waited to go to the bathroom until the Holy Spirit told him each day. If we look at the context, this specifically had to do with his teaching and with the mighty works he was doing. He's basically saying, my teaching isn't just what I'm spouting off the top of my head just because I feel like it. It's coming from the Father. Jesus was defending his teaching by saying that it doesn't come from mere human authority. It comes from the Father. But moreover, we know from other passages that it's not a sin to do something of your own initiative. Let's look at Luke 12, 56 through 57, also in the NASB 1995 translation. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not, even of your own initiative, judge what is right? So Jesus was saying they should have, of their own initiative, judged what is right and wrong. So it's not a sin to do things of your own initiative. Another um, area people tend to assume whiteless morality in is in the area of worship. And this one might be a little bit more complicated, but let's talk about it. 
So one reason people assume whitelist morality in the area of worship is because of uh, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. Let's look at Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So some people look at that. They offered incense that God didn't command them, and they start to think, well, I guess in the area of worship, we ought to assume that unless God commands you to do it, it's wrong. But that's, that's missing um, some important things from earlier in the Scripture. It's not like God didn't warn them about this. It's not like the rest of the Scripture uh, assumes blackless morality, and then this part starts assuming whiteless morality. What they did was actually explicitly forbidden. Let's look at Exodus thirty verse nine. You shall not offer un. So this is in regards to the altar of incense in the temple, and God said, "You shall not authorize uh, offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering." You shall not pour a drink offering on. So God gave specific instruction. Even this part of the scriptures in Leviticus is assuming blacklist morality, that unless God explicitly forbids it, it is allowed. And also to the idea that in worship, you're not allowed to do something unless it's explicitly commanded, I would urge people to think about... um, David dancing before the Lord. Let's look at 2 Samuel 6.14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David was worshiping God through dancing, but that had never been commanded in the Torah. Worshiping God through dancing was never commanded in the law of Moses anywhere. That had never been commanded in God's word but God wasn't displeased with David for it. So we got a bit into the details in this, and hopefully uh, the words I use for things aren't confusing. But we're going into this just to show nowhere in the Bible does the Bible endorse the mindset that something is wrong unless the Bible says it's right. Nowhere in the Bible does the Bible endorse that mentality. The Bible, throughout the whole thing, assumes the mentality that unless it forbids something, that thing is allowable. So how, do, how does this sneak into our thoughts or creep into our thinking? I don't think any of us would wholesale agree with whiteless morality, um, but we might let it sneak into a few areas of our thinking. If ever you find yourself thinking, I don't know if such and such is okay, no one did it in the Bible, then you're letting this sneak into your thoughts. The idea that I don't know if such and such is okay, no one did it in the Bible, is actually an unbiblical thought because it goes against the assumptions postulated by the Bible. 
And we do need to be on the lookout for this. This, this type of thinking has crept into a number of places throughout the church. So that's the second type of underlying thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards. The third thing, uh, it might not be a type of thinking per se, but the third type of thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards is not knowing the Bible or not knowing it very well. So how does that lead to extra-biblical standards? Well, there's, there's all kinds of people trying to push extra-biblical standards onto people. And unless you know the Bible well, you can't know whether something is, whether a standard is biblical or not biblical. You know, say some Mormon missionary comes to you and tells you drinking caffeine is a sin, and you've never read the whole Bible. You can't logically or reasonably confidently say, the Bible doesn't say drinking caffeine isn't a sin because you never read the whole thing. You know for a fact it says things that you don't know if you haven't read it. You can't know what the Bible doesn't say unless you've read the entire Bible. And every Christian should have as a goal to read the entire Bible multiple times. And if you want to be free from moral standards that don't come from God, you're going to have to read the entire Bible multiple times. A person can't reasonably, confidently say, I know the Bible doesn't say that. I would have remembered if it did, unless they've read the whole Bible multiple times. If you've so because if if you've never read the whole thing, you definitely can't say that. But even if you've read the entire Bible once, I mean, it's a big book. It's easy to forget little details here and there. In order to be reasonably confident about what the Bible doesn't say, you have to have read the whole thing multiple times. But that's an achievable goal. You know, it's, if a person reads at the average reading speed and doesn't take any breaks, reading the Bible 10 minutes a day is enough to get through the whole thing in a year. Reading the, Bi- the entire Bible multiple times is a very achievable goal, and we should all have it as a goal. So the, the fourth type of underlying thinking that can lead to extra-biblical standards, and the last one we're going to address today, is uh, antinomianism. So I would describe antinomian as the idea that the Old Testament law has no moral binding today. You know, anti means anti, and nomi has to do with law. So antinomianism, loosely in English, would be no lawism. <laughs> I mean, I guess it is an English word, but you know, antinomianism is the idea that the Old Testament law has no moral binding today. But what on earth does that have to do with extra-biblical standards? How could that lead a person to end up with extra-biblical standards? Well, humans instinctively find laws to follow to some degree because we're made in God's image. Every human is a moral creature. And even though sin and the fall have warped and twisted God's image in us, they haven't completely removed it. So God's image in humans, in fallen sinful humans, still inevitably works its way out in various ways and to various degrees. 
And one of those ways is that people will find standards to follow, or at least to believe in, to try to follow. People are going to look for some sort of law, even if that law is to have no law. Everyone has a standard. But if people don't give moral authority to God's law, then they tend to make their own law in one way or another. And even Christians do this. And that's why I would say antinomianism, or the idea that the Old Testament law has no moral binding today, tends to lead to extra-biblical standards in one way or another. But let's, let's talk a, a bit more about this idea. So why do people think, where do people get the idea that the Old Testament law has no moral binding today? Well, let's look at Romans 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, a lot of people interpret that uh, to mean you don't have to follow the law. It has no moral binding on you if you're in Christ. But that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that God's law has ceased to be the standard of morality. It still is. What Paul is saying is that you don't have to be free from moral failings in order to be righteous before God. God's law is very much still binding and relevant as a moral standard, but you don't have to be free from moral failings to be righteous before God, because righteousness is based on Christ's death. It's based on grace and it's based on faith. Not following the law perfectly. But if the law ceased to be God's the moral standard, such that there was no moral standard, then Christ wouldn't have had to die. We'd all be perfect by dint of there being no moral standard. The law is still a binding moral standard, and we know this from other parts in the scripture. Let's look at Matthew 5, verses 17 and 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven means New Testament. I mean, it doesn't like mean that in the dictionary sense, but the kingdom of heaven is a New Testament thing. So in the New Testament, whoever relaxes one of these laws or teaches other people that the Old Testament law is irrelevant, that's not good. In the New Testament, the Old Testament law is relevant. It's still a binding moral standard. Now, some of the laws don't apply anymore, like the priestly ones, because Jesus completely fulfilled them. And we don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of which ones apply and which ones don't, because that would take its own sermon or probably its own series. But you can't just dismiss the entire, entire Old Testament law just because we're living in the New Testament. Doing so is unbiblical. Even if a lot of Christians think that the Old Testament law doesn't apply at all anymore. That's not true. The Old Testament law still has application and moral relevance today. 
So those are four types of underlying thinking that leads to extra-biblical standards. Next week, we'll address five more. Uh, So in conclusion, legalism is constantly trying to sneak into your thoughts and attitudes in small and subtle ways, and you have to be on the lookout for it. No one is purposefully legalistic. We have to be uh, smart and cautious if we're going to avoid it. Uh, The second point of my conclusion, extra-biblical rules are bad and have real consequences. They're not just small things that aren't that harmful. We should really seek to avoid extra-biblical standards. They are harmful, and we should be diligent and have our, do our due diligence to avoid them. Because no one purposefully follows extra-biblical standards. They can hinder our testimony, they can hinder unity, and they can lead us away from the heart of God. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll have our communion meditation. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace. We thank you that you gave us a perfect law, a perfect moral standard. Uh, We thank you that you give us light for our feet, Lord, that you show us what is right and what is wrong. And we thank you that your law, empowered when we're empowered by your Holy Spirit, is not burdensome. We thank you that your commandments are not burdensome. And we thank you that you give us much freedom. And uh, we pray that you'd help us to understand your word deeper. We pray that we wouldn't add any standards to it, but we pray that we also wouldn't miss any standards that are there, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't fail to see any commandments that are in your word. We pray that we would know your word accurately and precisely, and we thank you for your grace, and amen. Today's communion meditation is called, God doesn't just save us from guilt, he also saves us from sin. So it's kind of a common thought in a number of places today that Christ's death and resurrection uh, and salvation means saving us from guilt. And it does, but that's not the only thing it means. Christ's death and resurrection also saves us from sin. And it's very important to understand how significant that is. This was a very major point for Paul in the book of Romans. Like you you can almost hear how much he feels that this is a big deal. Let's look at Romans 7, verses 24 through 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh will serve the law of sin. So this idea... Paul clearly is not just concerned with being saved from his guilt. Paul in Romans is well aware of the moral guilt that deserves full condemnation for having disobeyed God's law. But he, he's like, I need saved from my sin, my guilt and my sin. This was a very big deal for Paul. If God just saved us from our guilt but left us in our sin, we would be unfit and incapable of having an intimate relationship with him. We'd be incapable of standing in and enjoying his presence. We need saved from our guilt and our sin. And if we don't see that, we're missing a big part of the core of the gospel. Jesus saves us from our um, guilt, and he also saves us from our sin. He saved us from our... If we've received him as... 
accepted him as Lord and Savior, then he has saved us from our sin, and he is saving us from our sin, and one day we'll be completely saved from our sin. Let's look at Jude 1, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's praise him as we come to the table.